amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Со двора подъезд известный под названием Черный ход в том подъезде, как в поместье проживает черный кот. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Every podcast, I talk to an author about their new book on Russia or Eurasia. In this episode, I spoke to Artemy Kalinovsky about his book, A Long Goodbye, The Soviet Withdrawal from Afghanistan. It's been 20 years since the Soviet Union collapsed, and scholars still joust over its long and short-term causes. Amid the myriad factors, stagnating economy, reforms spun out of control, globalization, nationalism, etc., the Soviet war in Afghanistan figures in many narratives. Indeed, the 10-year intervention was one of the hottest and bloodiest conflicts in the Cold War, and the traumatic legacies among a generation of Russian citizens continue to resonate. Interestingly, Artemy Kalinovsky emphasizes in The Long Goodbye, the Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan, that the intervention was a reluctant one, and quickly recognized by the Soviet leadership as a quagmire. Yet the Soviets postponed the inevitable, out of a belief they could stabilize the country, help build an Afghan army, and create legitimacy for the government in Kabul. In the end, it took Mikhail Gorbachev and his foreign policy of new political thinking to extricate a beleaguered Red Army and save whatever face possible, despite its all-too-visible scars on the polity. Simultaneously historical and prescient, the long goodbye provides clarity to the logic of Soviet decision-making and accepting Afghanistan as intractable, and as it, its echoes amplify in our present day. For more on the long goodbye, here's my interview with Artyom. Hi, Artyom. Hi, Sean. Uh, welcome to New Books in Russian-Eurasian Studies. Thanks for taking the time to talk about your book, A Long Goodbye, The Soviet Withdrawal from Afghanistan. Thank you for having me. Well, first off, uh, just to start, why don't you tell me about yourself and how you came to write this book about the Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan? Sure. Uh, well, I was a um, history uh, undergraduate uh, at George Washington University um, and started getting interested in the topic uh, back then, although I had no idea that I would ever uh, really research it or, or even go on to do a PhD. Um, and then when I finished uh, my master's at the LSC, I was looking for a thesis topic. And I was talking to my advisor, and we were, we were talking about the Soviet war in Afghanistan, and, and quite a lot had already been done on the intervention, right? That was one of the sort of mysteries earlier. Why did the Soviets actually intervene? And that had been uh, a lot had been done on that in the, in the 90s. But one thing that hadn't been done was how did they go about getting out? Um, well, or that had been done, but, but not really researched uh, in, in any great depth, uh, not uh, using Russian sources. And so I went off to Moscow to do a sort of 10,000-word um, master's thesis on the topic. And what I found was that, that there, was, there was quite a lot to say. Uh, and that there was quite a lot of work to do. And so when I got the opportunity to come back and, and do a PhD on it, uh, I took it, and that, you know, eventually became the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And did you have problems with source materials, particularly on the archival level? Sure. I mean, the 1980s in general are still fairly hard to research uh, in Russia. And when you're dealing with something like foreign policy, when you're dealing with something uh, as you know, as problematic as the Afghan war, uh, those problems are even bigger. I never, 
I, I had permission to work in the archives of the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, for example, but, you know, I never got anything above the level of sort of press clippings. Um, so, but on the other hand, I mean, what I was able to take advantage of, one, was all of the material that was declassified uh, in the early 1990s on the war. You know, when there was an effort to discredit the Communist Party and discredit the former leadership, a lot came out then, although that had to do more with the intervention than the way the war was fought. Um, and I was able to really sort of get the skeleton for uh, the dissertation and, and, the, and the book uh, from the materials of the Gorbachev Foundation archives. Mm -hmm. And the story there is that basically Gorbachev uh, and his advisors, you know, after Gorbachev resigns, uh, they set up this foundation, which has different purposes. But his advisors take a lot of the material that they can with them. And they've been using it to write their memoirs, to publish diaries, uh, and so forth. And they also set up an archive uh, within that foundation. And one of the most useful things in there is that they have the, uh, they have the notes that they've taken, uh, that his advisors and his, his aides were taking at Politburo meetings. Oh, wow. Uh, and these aren't, you know, that's not an official record, but where I could match it up with other notes, they, they were usually quite accurate. Now, a lot of this has been published now. It wasn't when I was working there. But what you can do then is you can start sort of getting an outline of the debates. You can start getting an outline of when decisions are taken, who's who's saying what in, in the meetings, uh, what kind of arguments are being made. And then around that skeleton, you start building uh, the rest of the story. And so even even within this archive, you do also have uh, some of the memos that his advisors are passing on to Gorbachev. Uh, you have some of the arguments they're making for or against the policy, for or against, you know, a particular uh, decision. Um, so that that was the start. And then you supplement that with, you know, uh, in the end, I was using quite a lot of memoirs, um, interviews, materials from uh, even the archive of the economy. It gave me a bit of a sense of, of how... Soviet Afghan aid and trade work or, or helped develop that sense. Um, some stuff from private collections, uh, things that people had taken with them from Afghanistan and, and were willing to share was very helpful. Uh, and then uh, from American and UN archives as well. Yeah, I saw the uh, the UN and American archives in, in your footnotes, and I was quite curious as to um, you know the access to particularly the Soviet material, since as you said, I mean it is the 1980s. It is about the Af yeah. the war in Afghanistan, and uh, I was always curious about the holdings of the Gorbachev uh, Foundation archive. So, yeah. so that's great that you were able to get that access to be able to even do a, a project like this. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, I mean, I'm sure 10, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, when things become much more open, somebody can come along and do something, you know, very different with maybe access one day to military archives and, and access to the foreign ministry archives. But I think that for the moment, I mean, I was pretty happy with what I was able to get. Right. Right. Together there. Well, before getting into the, the, the main thrust of the book, talk a bit about the situation in Afghanistan leading up to the Soviet intervention. In particular, what what were the Soviets' interests there? I mean, I think the Soviets, generally speaking, when, when they're dealing with Afghanistan in the late 70s, they're really reacting to something that, as far as I can tell, and I, I think most scholars who have looked at this would agree with me now, uh, that they weren't really prepared for and that they weren't really planning for. And basically what happens is, you know, through the 1970s and even going back to the earlier period uh, when Afghanistan is still a monarchy, they have a good relationship. Uh, with that country. Uh, they are major providers of development aid, uh, along with the Americans in that period. Uh, although they're starting, they're, they're sort of quickly becoming more important than the Americans are in terms of the volume of aid, and also in terms of supporting the Afghan military, which the Americans are not willing to do. Uh, and then in 1978, there's, there's this sort of small communist party that's internally divided uh, that the Soviets have a relationship with, but on the whole, they're encouraging them to actually work with the Daoud regime uh, in Kabul. Uh, but by 1978, Daoud uh, is is grown too suspicious of them, and he decides to he decides to try to get rid of them. But at this point, they have too much support in the military, and basically, they're able to use you know his attempt to get rid of them uh, to launch a coup against him. 
And so suddenly, April 1978, you have a communist government, uh, pro-Soviet communist government in Afghanistan. And the, the Soviets, of course, have to welcome it, uh, and, they, and they do welcome it cautiously. Um, but they're very quickly becoming very concerned about, one, how rapidly this new government wants to move with its reforms. Uh, and two, with just how internally divided it is and how intent it is on carrying out purges uh, within the uh, government and within the military and within ultimately its own party. Uh, and they're doing their best, I mean, through whatever channels they can uh, to get these guys want to slow down in terms of, you know, and, and be a little less ambitious in terms of what they want to do in the country. You know, they're warning them, don't turn the population against you. And two, uh, to stop fighting each other. Um, and then uh, eventually, uh, you know, it gets to the point where finally they do face uh, a first sort of uprising, a major uprising which takes place in March 79 in the city of Herat. And uh, it doesn't take long for the, for the Afghans to call for Soviet help, to call for Soviet, um, Soviet planes to help put this down. And this is, this is one of the more interesting um, records of, of a debate that we have, I think, uh, because the Soviets, you know, there's several sort of long Politburo sessions in March of 79 where they're discussing whether or not you know, how they should react to the situation. This has, by the way, been translated into English. You can find it on the website of the Cold War International History Project. Hmm. And what's really fascinating is that, you know, ultimately they decide not to intervene in this case. But the arguments they make for not intervening, you know, these are all the things that end up happening after they actually do intervene, which is, you know, the international community uh, is going to criticize us. We're going to end up fighting uh, against the Afghan people, uh, you know, we're going to end up doing the work of the Afghan military, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I, you know, I can't remember it verbatim now, but basically all the things that end up happening, they, they know they're going to happen in March of 79. So the question is then why do they intervene uh, in December 79 when they were so intelligent in their assessment of, mm -hmm. of we're going to go in March of 79? And the answer basically is that quite a lot had changed uh, both internationally and within Afghanistan between March and December. Uh, within Afghanistan, this internal, uh, this internal fight just gets worse and worse. Uh, basically, the more radical branch, the, the Hulk, uh, gets rid of most of its opponents. And then the two leaders of, of Hulk who are left now, Abitullah Amin and Mohammed Taraki, uh, they are fighting each other. And uh, in the summer of 79, this is getting worse and worse. Additionally, it's clear that uh, further sort of destabilization is going to happen in the country and that the Soviets are increasingly helpless in terms of being able to convince uh, these leaders to do anything different. In the fall of 79, Taraki tries to get rid of Amin, fails, and Amin is able to get rid of Taraki, even though uh, the Soviets had kind of uh, endorsed Taraki over Amin or at least try to guarantee his safety. Um, then internationally, 70, the summer of 79, you know, SALT II fails in Congress. Um, this is a big one. The decision to place uh, Pershing missiles in, in, uh, in Europe sort of adds to this growing paranoia of the Soviet leadership, you know, about the, their isolation. Uh, and then uh, also, you know, a factor is the course of the Iranian Revolution. And here, you know, what's quite interesting is that the Americans in the wake of the Iranian revolution and in the wake of their sort of loss there, they're worried that the Soviets are going to take advantage and press on, uh, you know, to, to take advantage of the American loss in Iran. The Soviets seem to be thinking that, well, the Americans have just lost in Iran. They're going to be looking for a way to compensate for that. And so they're thinking of also the point where they're saying, well, we can't let Afghanistan uh, devolve into chaos because the Americans are going to take advantage of that situation. It's, it's interesting that there's, I mean, one, on the one hand, there's a lot of push-pull factors. Mm -hmm. But it, 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 it's fascinating that the, the, this kind of move into intervening into Afghanistan really is, is based on kind of a misperception of, of conditions and, and also 
you know, fear of kind of geopolitical movements going on in the region. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and also, I mean, I think very much a sense of hopelessness in the sense that, you know, we've exhausted the other options. Uh, and, and, and this is, you know, the only way now that we can stabilize Afghanistan is by intervening with our, uh, with our own forces. Now, the thing is that they don't inter when they intervene, they don't really plan on, well, they don't plan on staying for 10 years. Um, nobody ever does. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and they also, I mean, they don't really think that the, their own military is going to do the bulk of the fighting. What they're hoping that they're going to do is they're going to get rid of Hafezullah Amin, who, in addition, by the way, they're starting to suspect may be interested in working with the CIA. Um, it's it's not clear to me how serious that particular concern is or how much of a factor it plays, but it, it, it's definitely sort of in the back of their mind. Um, in the back of their mind. Um, so their thought is get rid of him put in somebody much more moderate in his place and then use the Soviet military to sort of guard the main economic installations, the bases, and let the Afghan military go out and deal with any problems, you know, any residual problems that are, that are there. And for the first two months, January, February of 1980, the, the Soviet military is basically not engaging actively in, in, uh, in operations. Or rather, I mean, they're not they're not uh, engaging in any offensive operations. Uh, but what happens is, of course, that they quickly discover that the situation is worse than they expected, and the Afghan military is is in much worse shape than they'd expected. Because, of course, the officer corps has been uh, not you know not decimated, but certainly has lost a lot of of, of its best cadres because of what um, Amin and, and Taraki had been doing because of the purges and because of these divisions. And, and and the recruits are not particularly reliable. And so very quickly, it goes from being a sort of Soviet support mission to a Soviet-led uh, mission. And basically from there up until 86 and really up until withdrawal, it's going to be the Soviet military that's leading the way. Uh, very much the dominant sort of factor in in, in operations. Mm -hmm. So what what are the you, you spoke a little bit about the the goals and what they mm -hmm. at least plan on doing? But once they mm -hmm. commit full military, what are the goals uh, they hope the Soviet government hopes to achieve in Afghanistan? What they're hoping to do, I mean, this is this is going to sound so eerily familiar. They're hoping to give the the new Afghan government, you know, space to uh, assert itself and, and regain control of the country. Um, to be a bit more specific, what they're hoping is that uh, militarily that they'll be able to uh, cut off the supplies coming in from uh, Pakistan, which actually, I mean, are, are increasingly becoming a factor in 1980 and, and onwards from there. Uh, they're hoping they'll be able to uh, deal enough of a blow to whatever sort of opposition uh, is, is armed opposition is forming and, and fighting against the government to convince these people to lay down their arms. But mostly what they're hoping to do is, is, is to train up the Afghan army uh, to deal with the situation themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're, you're right. It does sound eerily familiar. Yeah, that's on the military end. You know, besides that, they, they have this sort of, you know, the bigger mission is, is also to provide enough economic aid and training and infrastructure building and all of this to to make basically this government legitimate to the Afghan people. They ne they never they never think that oh we can just do this, you know, militarily. I mean that's that's not the way they think of the problem. Um there's several sort of almost you could say different projects uh going on at the same time that are part of one big project. So um and you speak a little bit about this, but uh, I want you to kind of elaborate on it because I find it quite interesting. Um, how did Soviet, on the one hand, how did Soviet society react to um, the military intervention? And then something you deal with in greater length is the world reaction. So if you mm -hmm. could speak on both of those issues. I, it's, it's hard to speak about Soviet society uh, in general. Um, certainly there were people who were posted from the very beginning and, and not just in society, but I mean, uh, I talk about in my book that within mm, the Soviet sort of elite, within the Soviet leadership, there were people who were opposed to it and were saying from the very beginning, you know, you need to get out as soon as possible. 
Uh, and I, there were people in the Politburo who, who were thinking along those lines. Um, Soviet society in general, I mean, there were people who protested the war, Andrei Sakharov, uh, for example, probably most famously. But there doesn't seem to have been any kind of mass protest against the war or uh, mass draft avoidance, certainly not in the war's early years. Part of that, I think, had to do with the fact that the Soviets, you know, they kept the the extent of operations quite secret, right? I mean, the first few years of the war, the Soviets were officially just basically building schools and so forth. And it, and it took a while before more honest reporting started to come out. Um, and partially, I mean, it's also worth remembering that obviously 100,000 troops is objectively not a small number, but you're talking about a military of 5 million people. Um, so for a while, at least, the overall impact is, is quite small. Um, but, but of course, that changes over time. One thing that I was interested in uh, and that I've been able to research further since the book came out is the way that uh, the war is perceived in Central Asia. Because, of course, there are, <laughs> particularly in the United States, there are people at the time saying, you know, this is going to be a big problem for the Soviets. Uh, you know, Soviet Muslim soldiers are going to identify more with the Afghans than with their... Uh, Soviet brethren, uh, with their Soviet sort of uh, fellow soldiers, uh, or with the Soviet state, and there's going to be infiltration of, of uh, Islamist ideals and so on and so forth. Um, and again, I, you know, I'm not ready to make any general statements, but it seems that quite a lot of the Central Asian soldiers who did go to fight um, did so out of uh, feelings of, of, of genuine patriotism. Um, and, I, you know, a sociologist is going to have to go back and, and do this, um, do a full study on this. But um, at least in the early years of the war, that 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 seems to be the much more dominant attitude. Although later on, there will be people who come out of this experience and and their attitude towards the Soviet Union changes profoundly because of what they see in Afghanistan. Right. right. Those individuals, those I don't think that's ever a mass phenomenon. Those are individuals. But some of them. Uh, go on to play sort of crucial roles um, in in the events in Tajikistan in the early '90s, in Uzbekistan, and so forth. Um, so that's that's the sort of what I can say about the domestic reaction in the early years of the war. Uh, in terms of the international reaction, of course, it's it's quite you know it's quite a blow uh, to the Soviets. Um, of course, the United States is able to take advantage of this and, and sort of, you know, suddenly show that it's the Soviet Union that's the imperialist aggressor, not the United States. Uh, and and in a way, of course, uh, you know, this plays this plays very well. Um, their third world allies, even some of the communist allies, I think, are a bit troubled by this. India, which has been uh, an ally, uh, is is not happy about this. Uh, and they're getting, you know, they're getting just destroyed uh, in the United Nations. But interestingly, very quickly, some of this begins to soften. Uh, India, for example, under uh, Indira Gandhi, very quickly decides that really they're better off supporting the communist regime in Afghanistan and maintaining their relationship with the Soviets uh, and, and keeping that as a, as a sort of uh, a counterweight to Pakistan. Right. And, and uh, Islamization in the region than they are sort of going with the American line. And that, I think, is a big frustration to, to the Reagan administration uh, later. Uh, and, that, and that is very helpful for the Soviets. I think that's a big load off their shoulders. Um, other third world countries also sort of, uh, um, you know, uh, stop, stop criticizing the Soviet Union so much. Interestingly enough, when the Soviets withdraw, some of the biggest sort of criticisms, not necessarily publicly, but, but privately are coming from India, hmm. um, from other third world countries, because they don't like this precedent of the Soviet Union pulling out. I would think for particular for India, because as you said, as a counterweight to Pakistan, if Pakistan's influence enough will inevitably grow in Afghanistan. Exactly. 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 And, and then of course the Pakistani relationship with the United States changed profoundly because of the Soviet intervention, right? Because you know, a few months earlier, you, you know, the relationship is, is, uh, as one diplomat put it, I think, you know, as bad as with any country in the world. Uh, and then all of a sudden, uh, they're sort of forced back into an alliance, um, and, and, and that sustains itself, you know, throughout the 1980s, as long as the Soviets are in Afghanistan, 
Um, and, and that has consequences, obviously, up to today. It's interesting that it, you you say that it's it was a reluctant intervention from the get-go. But rather quickly, by the end of 1981, the USSR, is, the government has pretty much realized that a, a military solution is not going to work. And they begin looking in earnest for a diplomatic solution. Uh, talk about this effort and, and particularly the obstacles in finding a diplomatic solution to the Afghan problem. In the early years, I think it's in some ways a bit of a half-hearted effort because they don't want to do, they don't want to end up in a situation where they have to admit they're wrong and they don't want to end up in a situation where they have to limit, uh, they have to limit their sort of freedom of action uh, within Afghanistan. They still think the priority is give this government the space to, to work, give this government a chance to stabilize itself, and then we can withdraw. But they're starting to realize that they're going to need to reach out a bit more to, to help this happen. And so one of the things that they agree to is this uh, UN-led uh, effort or UN-coordinated effort, which really basically is, you know, a, it's an effort to get Afghanistan and Pakistan uh, to agree, uh, get the Pakistanis to stop uh, supplying the Mujahideen, and then the United States and the Soviet Union theoretically acting as sort of guarantors of that uh, potential agreement, but this takes uh, this takes a long time. Uh, but between, particularly between 1983 when Yuri Andropov comes to power and 1985, uh, yeah, in the period when he's in power, 83, 84, uh, these talks are quite active, and they manage to at least on paper come to an agreement among uh, about a number of issues. So there's this international effort uh, that's going on. At the same time, they're involved in uh, efforts within Afghanistan to get the Mujahideen to lay down their arms. And they have their sort of special groups of uh, military intelligence and, and uh, the KGB working with the Soviet military, working with diplomats uh, and groups of advisors to get everybody, you know, from sort of small uh, groups of fighters to lay down their arms you know, all the way to thinking of how to get the big commanders uh, over uh, to the government side, or at least to get them to be neutral. And so this effort is underway uh, at the same time. That's very much also part of diplomacy. One of the few achievements that they have in those early years, and the big ones, is getting uh, a truce going with Ahmad Shah Massoud and his forces. And that truce lasts sort of on and off uh, up until 85, then they find another one. Uh, and it means that later, as they're withdrawing, one of the big hopes, uh, of, particularly on the part of the military, is that they can get Massoud to actually come around and join uh, the government side. Now, of course, as you already uh, mentioned, that this is also taking place in a wider geopolitical struggle between the U.S. and, and the Soviet Union. And, and talk about the real role of relations between those two powers and how they uh, hampered the, the end of the war in Afghanistan. Sure. Well, I mean, you know, when we're talking about the early years of the war, you're talking about really the nadir of U.S.-Soviet relations, uh, even in the context of the Cold War. Detente, you know, is is dead. If it's buried in the sands of the Ogaden, as Brzezinski said, you know, then Afghanistan is the, is the final, final nail uh, in the coffin. This is the period of the evil empire uh, and so forth. Then in... Uh, you know, after several years of this 81, 82, uh, you see, you start to see a bit of a change. Uh, obviously, the Reagan is starting to uh, change his views. Haig, Alexander Haig, who's, uh, you know, uh, vehemently anti-Soviet, uh, is out of the administration. Uh, it's becoming, the, the U.S. administration is becoming a bit more pragmatic. And then, uh also on the Soviet side, there, there's a realization that, you know, we need to start finding a way to, to talk to uh, the Americans like we did in the 70s, um, you know, because because of how difficult the situation uh, is. Uh, and so that that facilitates the start of this process through the United Nations uh, as well. And then, of course, when Gorbachev comes to power in 85, you know, the relations with the United States don't improve overnight, but they start improving very quickly. And that also gives Gorbachev encouragement uh, to press for this UN process, you know, to get that going again and, and to negotiate and talk to the Americans about it. 
When it comes to 1987, 1988, when the decision to withdraw is actually, uh, you know, being made, I think one thing that's crucial in, in terms of Gorbachev's thinking in particular is that he sees Afghanistan now as a obstacle to that final push for improvement with relations uh, and the improvement of relations with the United States. And he's, he's really wants to get it out of the way. And at the same time, he's really hopeful that once he's out of Afghanistan, once the Soviets are out of Afghanistan and he's shown to Reagan that the Soviets were serious about this, that then the United States is going to come around and be much more constructive in terms of taking part in a settlement uh, in Afghanistan that's going to be acceptable to the Soviets. Mm -hmm. But it seems it, it seems to a certain extent, though, that the United States is really take, taking advantage of this situation in the sense that while the Soviet Union is trying to better relations, they're still continually funding the Mujahideen against the Soviet army. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and I mean, what they're saying basically is, is that, uh, you know, until the Soviets are out, there can be no, until the Soviets also stop funding their ally, there can be no question about not funding, um, you know, the, their clients. Um, and, and what ends up happening is that the Americans, uh, when it, you know, when we're talking about 87, 88, they realize, well, the Soviets, now the Soviets want to get out either way. So there's no reason for us uh, to really give up anything else here. And of course, part of the reason is that the Pakistanis are, are very uh, actively saying, you know, don't stop supplying the Mujahideen. You still have this uh, horrible communist government in place. And then, you know, we still owe it to the Mujahideen to help them. Uh, get rid of that government. And you have also a lobby within uh, the U.S. government. You know, the CIA wants to see this uh, all the way through. I mean, this is one of the stories that I think is going to... It, it's been detailed in books like Steve Cole's Ghost Wars, but I think now that we're having a lot more declassified or going to be declassified in the next five, ten years, on the American side, this is going to be a story we're going to learn a lot more about, which is the debate within the United States between the State Department and the CIA and and within the Reagan administration about what the best course is. Should the United States be helping the Soviet Union uh, achieve something in Afghanistan, meaning a government that's acceptable to, to everybody and to the Afghans themselves, or should they keep pressing for, uh, you know, Najibullah's, uh, the, the sort of resignation of Najibullah, the fall of the communist government, etc. Mm -hmm. And I think also, in, and this is a, a big part of your story um, that is quite interesting, is, is really how forces on the ground, so within the Afghan government, the, the role of Pakistan, are really playing um, as as trying to keep both the United States involvement and Soviet involvement in, in the country. Oh, absolutely. Um, the Pakistanis, I mean... They realized that, well, first of all, they realized that their relationship with the United States uh, improved because of Afghanistan and that any major change there uh, is going, you know, they're going to have, that's something that they would have to deal with. Um, they also are afraid, not not without reason, that if this, the Americans stop supplying the Mujahideen, suddenly the Pakistanis are going to be left alone to deal with with uh, with this sort of well-supplied Afghan uh, military, perhaps with this sort of renewed confidence, and with India on the other side, which is quite clearly supportive of this uh, Afghan government. So they, they're, that's one reason they're pressing for uh, the Americans to stay involved. And, of course, the Afghan communist government, on the one hand, is in denial that the Soviets are ever going to get out. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, really terrified that they will, and so they're pressing them in any way they can, uh, to stay involved, to carry out operations that, you know, the Soviets are actually quite reluctant to do because they're working on negotiating with the commanders that the uh, Afghans actually want them to go ahead and bomb. And, and, and it, it becomes quite a dramatic story there, particularly uh, in 1987 and 1988 when the withdrawal is underway and, and this government really starts to feel the pressure. Right, right. Again, it, eer it, eerily, it sounds eerily familiar, um, this story. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it, it is. I mean, we you know we shouldn't push it too far, right? Uh, right. But but on the sort of broad outlines, it really does.
Yeah, especially I think the again the pressures of the the local government in realizing that without outside support, they're really not going to be able to to stay in power very long. Yeah, um, they don't really have the legitimacy. Uh, their legitimacy is based is being held in the hands of of the Soviet government in this case. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's it's a paradox because on the one hand, you know, their lack of legitimacy comes in part because. Uh, they are dependent on this outside government to stay in power. At the same time, you know, within the communist leadership, for example, in Afghanistan, you know, Najibullah needs to show that he has the Soviet support so that the people around him don't abandon him. You know, so his legitimacy on the one hand also is partially dependent on showing that he can get the Soviets to do what he wants. Well, let's step back in and talk a little bit more about Gorbachev, particularly when he comes to power in 1985. Um, you, you say that there, with him, you get a shift, a major shift in, in foreign policy under the slogan, new political thinking. Um, talk about this new political thinking and it, what does it mean for uh, the Soviet effort to get out of Afghanistan? Sure. The new political thinking uh, in foreign policy, uh, it's developed by the more reform-minded uh, people uh, who gather around Gorbachev, but who have been active earlier in the 60s and the 70s, many of them crucial to the efforts of detente. And it, it's basically, in 85, it's, it's about getting past the sort of confrontation uh, that has existed since, since the late 1970s and trying to get back to some sort of detente uh, with the West changing uh, slowly the relationship with the Eastern European allies as well. But mostly, first of all, it's about improving relations with Western Europe and uh, the United States. It comes to mean other things as well. With Afghanistan, the implications are not immediately clear. Uh, because on the one hand, Gorbachev, and not just Gorbachev, I mean, at this point, I think the consensus is fairly broad, realizes that the Soviets need to get out. And he says later that, you know, on his sort of notepad, that he had on his desk, the first thing he writes, his first priority that he writes down when he knows he's going to become general secretary is get out of Afghanistan. That's a priority from day one. Uh, the problem for him, as it was for his predecessors, is how do you get out without leaving chaos? How do you get out without losing face? And so even though very genuinely, he's trying to find a way out from day one. It's going to take him uh, quite a while. It's going to take him uh, three years before before the withdrawal even starts. And so what he does is he starts basically experimenting with changing the way the war is fought, even as he's pursuing the diplomatic track. He's also trying to, he's hoping that by changing the way that the Soviet aid effort is, is carried out and the Soviet war is carried out. Uh, maybe something can be achieved before the withdrawal takes place and then, you know, therefore uh, give at least some guarantee that some government there is going to last after the Soviets withdraw. Now, the problem is that once you start these, uh, you know, you, you start these new approaches, new attempts, you get into the pattern that existed before where everybody says, yes, absolutely, we need to get out. But we need to give this particular thing a chance to work. Right, the deadline keeps on uh, shifting. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, uh, before the, the Soviets had sent in all these, you know, political advisors uh, and said, well, we'll give them a chance to work before we think about putting it. And now he pulls them out because, he, <laughs> because everybody's told him that these guys are, are doing more harm than good. So he pulls a whole lot of them out. Um, he changes the leadership. Babrak Karmal who was installed in 1980, the Soviets are basically sick of him by 1983. Um, they feel that he's ineffectual. They feel that he doesn't have much uh, authority. They feel that he's far too uh, dependent on them. He's not willing to really reach out to the Afghans enough. There's rumors that he drinks. Uh, so they replace him uh, in 1986 with Mohammad Najibullah. Oh, still known as Najib, by the way, uh, because as a communist, he didn't want the the second part of his name to be to be emphasized. Um, well, they replace him. Everybody's impressed by him. He's been groomed by the KGB. He impresses everybody in the Politburo. Uh, he seems to be very strong-willed, very intelligent. Great. The problem is, of course, now we have to give him a chance uh, to actually, you know, uh, get gain some authority. So 1986, then we're waiting in 1987. 
for him to really solidify his control. So all these things are are, are pushing the sort of the deadlines back. And, and you have, and this is one of the things that you have coming through uh, these Politburo records in the Gorbachev Foundation and some of the diaries is 1985, Gorbachev is saying one, two years, and then we're out. 1986, one, two years, and then we're out. 1987, <laughs> one, two years, and then we're out. Yeah, you, you. I think you at one point you put it in, in not in so many words, but he has a, a desire to get out, but has no idea how to do it. Yeah, I wouldn't say he has stage. no idea how to do it. He's, he's, yeah, he has no idea how to actually make it happen in 1985. But what right. he's doing is he's also, I mean, he also needs time to learn about it. Right. Particularly in 1985, you know, foreign policy. He's he's sort of involved with it before 85, but that's not his his main focus. So he's he's very actively trying to learn about it. He's trying to get advice from people, um, both from his more reformist minded advisors, from the military, from everybody. So he also needs some time for himself uh, to collect those ideas. But by October, by the fall of 85, he's very willing to go in front of the Politburo and say. You know, this this is this is enough. We need we need to uh, we need to get moving, and and he generally he has at least in principle everybody's in favor. So by the spring of 1986, there is clear consensus within the leadership, um, and in in getting out of Afghanistan, and they even start to uh, they at least they have a plan to try to save face called the national a national reconciliation. Um, talk about what this plan is, and uh, what are some of the factors that essentially led to its failure. Well, the policy of national national reconciliation, the idea there is that around this new leader that they have, around Najibullah, they are going to make a redouble effort to reach out to elements of the opposition uh, and try to bring them into a government and try to make this government at the same time more palatable to the Afghan people. So they finally are able to um, sort of de-emphasize uh, the atheism of the government, the communism of the government, um, you know, the things that they think are, are making it particularly unfavorable uh, to the Afghan population. Uh, they let some of the landlords come back, you know, they're doing these sort of things. And at the same time, they're making uh, more and more of an effort to reach out, not just to the lower level commanders, but to uh, the bigger commanders. And they're doing this through uh, you know, the Soviet diplomats are involved, uh, Soviet uh, intelligence, military intelligence, the KGB is involved, uh, reaching out to Massoud, reaching out even, trying to reach out to Hekmatyar and to the other commanders. And the idea is that while making sure that the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan and Najibullah play a leading role in whatever government takes place, that they'll be able to bring these people and offer them something that makes them uh, be a part of whatever government succeeds them. Um, it's not a complete failure, uh, but because they do get some people to come over to, to the government side, but ultimately they're never able to, uh, to get any of the big opposition figures uh, over to the government. Um, one reason is that Najibullah and, and the communist regime in general is quite unpalatable to these people. They've been fighting against them for so long. They're, they're confident that ultimately victory is going to be theirs. Many of the people who join the resistance uh, join because they've been or their families have been in some way uh, harmed by this regime. Um, I didn't, you know, I didn't do a whole lot of in-depth research on the Afghan side of the story. But even the some of the opposition people that I talked to, they said, you know, when, when the communists came to power, we thought they were okay. They promised free education. They promised uh they promised, you know, uh, health care and all these things for everybody. But, you know, then my uncle was arrested and tortured or then my brother was arrested and tortured. And then eventually we all went over to the opposition. Uh, and so for these people as well, uh, you know, negotiating with this government, joining this government uh, really is not that's not something that they want to do. Um, so that that's that's a factor as well. And the fact, of course, that they have the confidence that the Americans are going to keep supplying them with arms and the Pakistanis are going to help them achieve ultimate victory. Uh, that's a part of it as well. Another reason, of course, that it fails is that it turns out that Najibullah sometimes has a very different vision of what he wants or wants to achieve than the Soviets do. And this really becomes clear in the negotiations with uh, Massoud. The Soviets 
seem to believe, at least the Soviet military and part of military intelligence really, and, and, and the diplomats as well, they're really impressed by Massoud by this point. They're impressed by him uh, as a fighter, but even more so perhaps as an organizer, as somebody who uh, really is able to create almost a state within a state in the territory he controls. Um, you know, and these, they, they talk about how he built schools and hospitals and he was doing all the things that they were trying to do in Afghanistan in general, except he seemed to be doing them better. And he was also somebody that they'd negotiated with previously. He seemed to be sensible. Uh, he, you know, when he agreed to a truce, he usually kept that truce. So they think that they can get him to join uh, a government with Najibullah. Najibullah thinks that they're naive and that uh, Massoud is never going to work with him. And what he wants to do is he wants the Soviets actually to deliver a final blow to Massoud to really get rid of him before they withdraw. And the Soviet military is completely against this. The Soviet military intelligence is completely against this. But Najibullah wants this done, and he's able to convince the Soviet leadership to do this by basically going around the back of the Soviet military through the Soviet KGB, with which he has a better relationship, and, and, and getting the Soviets to uh, carry out one last operation, ultimately right before they withdraw, uh, against Massoud. But it's this kind of sort of lack of coordination and, and, and uh, lack of agreement on, on what the ultimate goals are that I think also contributes to the failure of national reconciliation. Mm -hmm. so, so in the sense that even though Gorbachev has a, has a consensus on um, amongst within the leadership and different segments of the Soviet government, mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot of divisions between them in terms of how one goes about this. Is that exactly. fair to say? Exactly, exactly. I mean, the specifics are always much more up for debate than the general line is. And what does the way Gorbachev negotiated these divisions? What does this uh, um, say about the way he governed and the way he made decisions concerning not just the, I mean in concerning the Afghan situation in particular? Here, in my view, his behavior is not very impressive um, because when the when the when this infighting between the Soviet military and the Soviet KGB starts getting really bad, uh, he's not. He doesn't seem able to to quite get it under control, and he ends up siding with the KGB uh, over the military. And I think part of the reason that he does that has to do with this, the problems he's facing elsewhere. Um, because by the fall of 1988, as we're sort of halfway through this uh, withdrawal process already, he's already felt the first sort of blows from the conservative opposition, right? In April... Uh, the, they allow this publication of, of a letter supposedly by a chemistry teacher in Leningrad saying, you know, that you know, it's called I cannot part with my principles. And it's basically a not not very veiled attack against uh, Stroika and Gorbachev is trying to do. Um, there's growing dissatisfaction among the military and the KGB, well, the military in particular, about his uh, position on arms control and so forth. And so he seems to be increasingly kind of reliant on KGB chairman uh, Vladimir Kruchkov as a sort of conservative balance against uh, other criticisms uh, that he might face. And he's, and he's listening to him. He's taking his advice on uh, Afghanistan as well. And so in, when these debates come up, he tends to lean uh, with that side. He tends to lean with, with, with the KGB on these issues. Another factor here, of course, uh, that we haven't talked about yet is his foreign minister, Eduard Shevardnadze. Shevardnadze is very much a liberal and a reformer on almost every other issue. Almost every other issue. And the one exception, for whatever reason, is Afghanistan. Uh, on Afghanistan, he, on the one hand, is very critical of the Soviet intervention, very critical of everything the Soviet Union has done. But he is also very much committed to this regime because he feels, you know, we've, we've made the commitment to them. We've promised them so much. If we withdraw, uh, and they collapse, you know, that's, that's our responsibility. And so he actually ends up being very much on the side of, uh, those arguing for, 
uh, delivering those final blows to Massoud. And later, when the withdrawal is about to be completed, he's also one of the people pushing a proposal to actually leave some troops behind. Hmm. Is is Shevardnadze also is it, one of his concerns is is the Soviet Union's general status in the third world? Or well, it's, and part of it's it's kind of a long long commitment post war commitment to third world countries. Sure, and that's that's everybody's concern. That's even oh. Gorbachev's concern. I see. Um, that's and that's going back to 1985. You have this uh, great quote. I mean, he, he says at a Politburo meeting, you know, we can't we can't just appear in front of the world in just our underwear. Right. You know, meaning that you know we can't just suddenly throw up our hands and say, oh, this isn't important to us anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's and it's it's because and it's also because he's getting these signals from the Indians. Um, from the Vietnamese, for example, who are saying, you know, you made a mistake going in, but don't make it even worse uh, by getting out too early. So it, that is a concern for everybody. Um, but but Chevronaz is, is is going further, I think. Um, and and he's really him and and the KGB chairman Vladimir Khrushchev. They're speaking uh, in one voice in one voice on Afghanistan in in this period. Hmm. It's quite remarkable. Yeah, I mean that is a, a, a tall uh, opposition for Gorbachev to kind of get around and mm-hmm. and, and to move move past. Um, talk about the significant now. F- the Geneva Accords is is the final agreement that sets a deadline for Soviet withdrawal. That's right. Um, t- talk about the significance of the accords and and though they really put the Soviet Union as a disadvantage, why did Gorbachev end up signing them? Mm-hmm. Well, the accords is, 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 you know, when they, they finally made this agreement, um, at, at the summit in uh, December of 87, the Soviets think they've gotten uh, this, the Americans to agree that once the Soviet Union withdraws, once the Soviet Union starts withdrawing, the Americans are going to stop uh, supplying the opposition. They think they've got that one uh, settled. Uh, but very quickly in January of 88, it turns out that that's not actually the case. And Reagan makes statements to the effect of, you know, no, that's 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 not what's going to happen. And the, the Soviets are very upset about this. But uh, uh, they feel, you know, they now have to make a choice. Either, either they keep dragging this out or they start uh, a withdrawal. And they decide that they're going to start a withdrawal no matter what. But if they're going to do a withdrawal, it's better to do one with an agreement that at least formally binds uh, the Pakistanis not to interfere and at least uh, sets a precedent and, and, and for, for a further agreement that hopefully will lead to the Americans eventually uh, stopping the withdrawal and also get some international uh, observation uh, of, of what's happening in Afghanistan. Those are the things that, that are uh, in agreement there. And so that that is the reason that they decide to sign. And we also have the record of the, the final sort of debate in the Politburo on whether to sign or not. And they basically say, better, we're going to withdraw anyway, better to do it with an agreement uh, than without. But of course, in the final form that this agreement uh, is signed, it, it's not too much more than a fig leaf for the Soviets. Because it, it, it doesn't bind the Americans uh, to anything. Basically, what they agree to do is... Once the Soviets stop supplying, the Americans will stop supplying. But of course, at this point, it's it's virtually impossible for the Soviets to stop supplying their client, and they're not they're not yet ready to do that. Um, so so that's why uh, that's why they stop. No, sorry, that's why they sign. That's why they sign. I see. And uh, the withdrawal itself. I mean, to speak a little bit about the process of of removing the troops and 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 the successes of, of getting out of Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, the, the withdrawal takes place uh, in two phases. The first one in uh, the sort of late spring, early summer of 1988. And then the second one is supposed to take place uh, in the fall. Uh, and it has to be complete by February 15th. Uh, and what they do is they draw the Soviet troops back to the big bases and from there start moving them uh, out uh, north. The single biggest success that they have is that they're able, well, I mean, overall, it, it is very well carried out. And this has been emphasized not just by the Soviet commanders themselves who, who make this happen, but also by Western analysts who observed it. Um, Lester Grau, I think at uh, University of Kansas, uh, has written about this uh, quite a lot. Um, 
but uh, but one of their one of their bigger successes again is that they're able to negotiate with Masood, who basically says, well, you know, as long as you're withdrawing, uh, you know, my people aren't going to attack you, and so they're able to go through that whole area uh, in the north uh, in relative safety, and that's quite crucial. They lose they lose relatively few people as they're withdrawing, but then of course one of the debates that takes place in, in the sort of late summer, early fall of 1988, as about half the troops uh, have been withdrawn, is, uh, of course, you know, the Afghan government is getting really nervous. Their position seems to be uh, weakening. Um, and then there's a call for, well, let's pause the withdrawal. Let's stop the withdrawal. And so, you know, and then there's a debate, you know, should we do this? Should we pause the withdrawal? Should we, uh, should we stop? Um, and ultimately, uh, again, despite the objections of, of some people, they end up keeping to the deadline and, and pulling out by February 15th, uh, 1989. And after the withdrawal, you, you say that the Soviet-Afghan policy was pretty much adrift after they pull out in, night, in early 1989. Um, talk about the impact of this kind of, I don't know, confusion in, in uh, Soviet policy uh, and its, its impact on Afghanistan. Well, I mean, of course, by 1989, uh, you know, Gorbachev has so many problems that he's dealing with. He's constantly under attack politically. The economy is really starting to uh, starting to tank. Um, so he can't really follow uh, Afghanistan all that closely. Uh, and it sort of falls to the different agencies that are still working on Afghanistan, particularly the KGB, uh, to some extent, the foreign ministry, um, to try to keep keep trying to negotiate, keep trying to uh, help Najibullah uh, find some, some agreement with the opposition or, or try to set up some kind of transition there. Um, after they withdraw, in March of 1989, uh, the forces of Gulbuddin Hekmatyar make a sort of first attempt to really try to take power uh, by attacking uh, near Jalalabad. And it's it's a crucial moment uh, in terms of how the next three years play out because, first of all, Masood refuses to take part in this, which I think says a lot about the Mujahideen and how much, you know, <laughs> the lack of agreement they had among themselves and the lack of cooperation mm-hmm. they had among themselves as well. Um, but as the attack begins, Najibullah, in a panic, is again asking for the Soviets basically to reintervene or at least you know to use uh, their air force to uh, to help. Uh, beat back the Mujahideen, and the Soviets debated. It's probably the last time they have a really serious debate about whether or not they should be involved, uh, and ultimately they decide against it. But Najibullah is able to hold on. His his army uh, is actually able to hold out. Uh, they're still, of course, using, they still have Soviet advisors there helping. They still have uh, all the Soviet equipment. But on, on the whole, they, they able to, they're able to hold out on them, by themselves. And that is crucial for Najibullah's own legitimacy with you know, the remaining supporters of this government. Uh, it's crucial, you know, as a blow to the confidence of the Mujahideen. And it's crucial also in terms of, you know, at this point, when the Soviets withdraw, there's this kind of defeatist almost attitude among a lot of people basically saying, well, you know, this government isn't going to last. Now they start thinking more in terms of, okay, we need to keep propping it up and, and working with it. Uh, and so from that point on, from the spring of 89, uh, Najibullah is, is seen as somebody who really can, uh, who really is a survivor, somebody who can uh, perhaps ultimately, uh, you know, around him, he really can build uh, a government. Um, but from this point on, I mean, Gorbachev is not is not in any way involved in the day-to-day policy making. It's left uh, to the KGB, to the military advisors, uh, and to the diplomats who are working on it uh, to, to deal with this situation. Uh, and what, Gor- what Najibullah ultimately is able to achieve in this period is this sort of, um, it's kind of like a zombie state. Uh, you know, he's, he's holding on to power. Uh, he has sort of Soviet funds and Soviet arms, which help him raise militias, you know, outside of the former military structure to fight on his behalf. Uh, he has this KGB trained, uh, secret police intelligence service, which helps control those militias. But he doesn't, he's not really gaining control of the country as such. And he's not really uh, being back this, this, uh, the resistance. And this has consequences for later as well, because of course, once 
the Soviets are really not able to support Najibullah anymore in 91, and once they finally cut off aid and then the Soviet Union collapses, uh, then you have these militias who are you know, willing to turn their arms back against Najibullah or against each other. And, and, and From there, we, we pretty much know the story that Taliban takes over in, in 1994, is it? Uh, they appear on the scene. They appear on the scene and take over 96. 96 is when they take Kabul, yeah. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So it, just to kind of sum up, um, what are some of the legacies uh, of the Soviet war in Afghanistan? And in particular, what might we learn uh, from from them, as, particularly as the U.S. enters its 10th year in, in fighting in this country? I mean, in terms of, you know, military lessons, I'm not I'm not a military historian. Sure. Sure. Say, but I, I will say that Actually, I do think the U.S. military has at least been studying um, the Soviet experience. Uh, Lester Grau himself uh, is, is a military historian, somebody I think who was in the military and has written a lot about it in, in various military journals. But my understanding is also that there are people in Kabul now actively studying what, what was going on then and trying to apply those lessons. For me, the most interesting parallels have to do with the thought process, the, the evolution of thought on on this problem that Gorbachev goes through and this process of, well, yes, we need to withdraw, but let's try this or let's try this. And then ultimately eventually saying, you know what, we've tried everything we can. Uh, None of that has done anything. We just need to pull out. And you kind of see the Obama administration going through the same process. I mean, there was a period when they were emphasizing civilian aid, then they started de-emphasizing it. Then there's more emphasis on uh, sort of targeting, uh, hitting targets, less emphasis on a broader effort. Um, and you kind of see this, oh, wow, okay, actually, just because this hasn't been tried before, just because this hasn't been emphasized before, it doesn't mean that that's actually going to solve the problem. Eventually getting to the point where you say, you know what, the only thing we can really do, despite the risks that it means for our international reputation, is pull out. To my mind, it's it's better to come to that conclusion earlier. Rather. You said that it's better to come to that conclusion earlier rather than later. I think so. I think so because you know every every month, every year that you're there. I mean, that's that's more death and destruction and and, and the use of your country's uh, resources. Um, in the long run, if you're not really achieving anything in that time, uh, it's hard to see what what the purpose is of staying. Right. Right. Well, you're, you, one of the things, I mean, is it's a fascinating book, particularly because of its timeliness. And you really show how at least the thinking uh, in the high levels of government actually contribute to the quagmire itself, mm-hmm. um, yep. which is and, – and also, you know, taking in consideration the, the, the pull factors on the ground that are trying to keep Soviet involvement in Afghanistan and contributing to why they stayed so long, even though they wanted to get out. So I think it's a, a quite uh, a good addition to our knowledge on that front. Um, just to r- wrap up the interview, what are you doing now? Uh, well, I just came back from uh, two and a half months in, in uh, Central Asia, mostly in Tajikistan and then a little bit uh, in Uzbekistan as well. And I'm hoping to ultimately write a study of sort of the political development of Tajikistan in the post-World War II period. Uh, to really sort of look at how the communists there worked on developing their state um, in the context also of uh, the Cold War and the importance that Central Asia played there uh, in the context of uh, their own sort of drive to to catch up with other parts of the Soviet Union and to have an influential role in Moscow uh, and so forth. But this was sort of my first uh, foray into the archives. Mm-hmm. And uh, was it and- successful? Uh, on the whole, yeah, I was very pleased with the trip. I mean, there are a lot of frustrations, but uh, on the whole, I was quite pleased with what it came out with. One smaller study that is going to come out of that, hopefully, though, uh, is is a more in-depth look at how the Afghan war impacted event, events there. And so one of the things I was able to look at is, is uh, a collection of biographies of veterans uh, that is kept in the archives there, veterans of the Afghan war, and also do uh, quite a lot of interviews with former veterans, both fighters and also people who were translators, uh, who played a crucial role. By the way, one huge advantage that the Soviets had that the Americans don't, of course, is this giant pool of translators exactly, to, yeah. uh, to work there. Um, so that hopefully will be a sort of article uh, in the next year or so. But the bigger project, the next five years, are going to be this political history.
Well, we look forward to both of them. They both sound fascinating. Um, so, but, so thanks for your time. It was quite a good interview. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with Artemy Kalinovsky about his book, A Long Goodbye, The Soviet Withdrawal from Afghanistan. I hope you enjoy the interview. Once again, I'm Sean Guillory, your host for New Books in Russia and Eurasian Studies. And if you're interested in hearing more interviews by the New Books Network, please go to newbooksnetwork.com. And until next time, goodbye. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.